This is the second Sunday in Lent, and remember last week I talked about the difference between in Lent and of Lent, so this is the second Sunday in Lent. Uh, last Sunday the focus was on temptation, and we always read from one of the Gospels, Mar Matthew, Mark, or Luke, the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and what uh, that means for us in terms of how he went through temptation, and if we understand him as the template, what does it mean for us? So I focused on what Father Keating talks about all the time is the location for those temptations, security and survival, affection and esteem, and approval and power and control. And those are the places where, in one sense, part of the Lenten journey every year is coming to terms with uh, where the, the flashpoints are in those three energy centers, or what he calls our irrational programs for happiness. You know, where we think what we think we have to do and, uh, in order to be happy and healthy and well. And on Ash Wednesday, which preceded it, we talked about the three predicates which come up through Lent and we'll revisit them in some form or another, and that's repentance, reconciliation, and godly motives. So I'm going to preach today on the reading from Genesis, where Abram makes a covenant with God, and he will soon become Abraham, and uh, talk about what the significance of that is. Uh, for somebody who's in a, a period or the church in Lent every year, and individuals are engaged in some sort of a, a uh, movement uh, through their own uh, interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states. What does it mean, and how do we think about that? And does Abram have anything to do with it at all? And then the gospel, where Jesus has now decided on plan B. Plan A was uh, sending disciples out and uh, preach the kingdom of God, and it uh, didn't turn out to be a big success. And he realized that in order to achieve his mission, or he believed this, he needed to go to Jerusalem and probably get arrested and go through what he went through. So today he's speaking about uh, the necessity to do that and reacting to the Pharisees or some of them who, was, who were warning him uh, about King Herod and about the danger that he is in. And he has some things to say about God's abiding, nurturing care and also about how people in groups can get uh, very smug and self-satisfied. So Abram, the Chaldean, is now um, being instructed by God to do something to enter into a covenant with him. By the way, some Abram means exalted father in Hebrew. And Abraham means father of a multitude. So he's going to go through now this, this transition, and we'll later read in Genesis, God says to Abraham, Abraham that his, his uh, offspring are going to be like the stars in the sky. He is going to be the father of many nations. And uh, this will be particularly important to people like Paul, who are speaking about the nations that the, this message of Jesus Christ is for the nations, which is another way to say the Gentiles, but it's everybody, not just 
for the people of the covenant. But today we're starting out, we're in Genesis, and Abram is uh, entering into this covenant with God. So here's why you hear me, and Ernest uh, says, from t- you need to be a student of the Bible, because what you're reading here is about certain ceremonial and ritual actions that have already been employed by sacrificing Judaism. You know, cut the two, cut the two oxen in half, lay them side by side, cut the two, lay them this way. Don't cut the birds in two. Just leave them, right? So here's the scene, and they're out there, and the, the buzzards and everybody come to land on these carcasses, and he drives them away. And then at night we have this sort of thing, this vision happen where the pot and the flame uh, come over these and burn them up, you know, which is what they did. And through that process now, Abram enters into a covenant with God. Why is this important for Lent or for you and me in any way? In Joel, in, on Ash Wednesday, we always read the reading from Joel that says, For God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. And it is a... It's, a, it's to me when I read that, it is an example of how God is changeable in this relational process with human beings. You know, when I was in seminary, we had to talk about things like God's passability, the passability of God, you know. And the fact is that this is very difficult with many Christians because if you believe in an absolutely sovereign God who is in control at all times and is absolutely, you know, as John Piper, one of the great evangelical preachers on YouTube, says he's even in charge of the dust motes. Right? So if you believe that, it would be hard to say what I'm going to say now because Old Testament scholars who study texts like the one we read from Genesis say what this shows us is that the covenant is structured in such a way as that each uh, person on either side of the covenant uh, is, uh, will suffer consequences if it's not kept. And that may mean that God... The, the, the affirmative way that I interpret that is God is always present, right? His end of the bargain is he'll never be a cutter and a runner. He'll be with you. Maybe you don't realize it. Maybe you don't believe it. Maybe you don't care. But this is a text that says God is steadfast and faithful. And Abram's response is going to be that he remains faithful. And what will Paul say about that? Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. You know, most of us, when we think about faith, we have faith, and the opposite of faith is doubt. Now, faith, and the opposite of faith is certainty. Right? Most people think that it's doubting. 
you know. Faith is a trust, a steadfast confidence. Uh, the people who wrote Genesis would have used immuna, which means trust. And so Abraham trusted in God. He had faith. And he then proceeded to, fought, to do what God told him to do. He moved away from where he was from. He did all of these things. His wife, who was 75, had a baby. Father Hunt used to say, well, you know, you can believe that if you want to. But it's a story about faith in God. So I believe that everybody has some species of a covenant with God. Maybe it's an off and on thing. But we do. And we, it helps us to know when we have doubts or we don't think we have enough faith that God is not going to leave. That God always stays. You know? And our part of the bargain is to... Uh, do everything in our power to increase our faith in the teeth of uh, great uh, disappointments, you know. I tell you, I get up every morning and I, I say to myself, I'm going to today believe the default position in relationship with people is that we are all people of goodwill. And we mean what we say. I don't have to figure it out I don't have to go through some election. I wonder, you know. My grandfather used to tell a joke years ago about uh, two psychiatrists who were walking together down the street, together, talking, and a third psychiatrist was walking down the sidewalk coming toward them. And he said, uh, good morning, and passed by them. And one psych the other psych one psychiatrist looked at the other and said, I wonder what he meant by that. <laughs> <laughs> Right. The other story that he told, uh, following on the, the, the psychiatrist thing, was that a guy felt that he needed to have a little therapy, and so he had a, was re a, a, a therapist was recommended to him, a psychoanalyst, and he went to see him, and he came in. They had the couch there, and the, the psychiatrist said, "Lie down on the couch and uh, loosen your tie, make yourself at home, and um, lie there." And the guy said, D uh, don't you want me to say anything? He says, no, just lie there. So he lay there for an hour. Uh, no conversation, no nothing. He gets up, puts his tie up, and leaves, pays him, and he goes. Next week he comes, same thing. Week after that, he came, same thing. Week after that, same thing. So finally, he swung his legs over the couch after this session as he was arranging his tie, and he said, Doc, can I say something now? And he said, sure. He said, do you need a partner? <laughs> now, we're not talking about that kind of trust, are we? We're talking about something uh, deeper and more important. So the gospel from Luke uh, is another example of why we need to know something about uh, the Bible and, and sort of the historical uh, setting. 
Jesus originally had a plan. He thought he, he was preaching in the towns and the villages. He sent his disciples out to do the same. He gave them instructions about how to do, you know, the sending of the 70, that kind of. They came back and it was kind of a bust. It didn't work, you know. I would have liked to have been there when uh, one of them shook his heel uh, as he left the village. As it turns out, in the Middle East, that is not a very happy gesture. And as you recall, at the press conference in uh, Baghdad, when uh, George Bush was there, uh, a couple of uh, reporters from Iraq took their shoe off and went like this. <laughs> in the press conference. And I guess people went, oh my. You know, it's not a, that's not a good thing at all. So um, when he, they did that, all that stuff still didn't work. So now he said, I'm, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and uh, confront the religious authorities and the Roman imperial system. And so he does this, and we know, now know what, what's going to happen after that. Now here's the thing. The temple in, in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman imperial army in 70 A.D. And Luke's gospel was written somewhere between 85 and maybe 90 A.D. So the, the, with the full knowledge that the temple had been destroyed. And so the language that's in this story about what Jesus is going to do can't help but be influenced by that chronological question. The temple was destroyed. And one of the things that Jesus is lamenting in this chapter is the uh, smugness and the feelings of superiority that the people of Jerusalem had about their city and about the temple and about everything else. It's about who, who pride. And their pride was crushed at, with the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem. And Jesus offers this wonderful image which is one of the blessings of the Revised Common Lectionary. It is a very feminine image of a, a, uh, a chicken, a hen, who spreads her wings over the chicks in a barnyard fire. And scientists, or not scientists, but farm people and everything, have told stories about how when fires like that have occurred, uh, they, and the smoke clears, the hen is fried to a crisp, and out from under her wings run the chicks. And Jesus is saying to the people that he's preaching to in this particular context, this is the way God wishes to look after you. This is the way God does look after you. But you wouldn't have it. A few years ago, I don't know, this popped into my head at eight when I preached. A few years ago, I read some sort of a study. I rem remember this, connecting it with about 25 years ago, uh, the legislature in California, the state legislature, was thinking about passing a resolution that um, made funds available to various programs, particularly in schools and everything, to assist in raising children's self-esteem. Right? We had a lot of self-esteem. We needed to do something, apparently, about self-esteem. Um, 
And in the Atlantic Monthly, about two or three, maybe four years ago, there was an article about the issue of self-esteem and how successive generations uh, have uh, understood this or what, what did they have low self-esteem. So we go, we, you know, we've been very fixed for many years now on baby boomers, Gen X, Gen Y, millennials. Gen Y has no difficulty with low self-esteem. They're very fine with themselves, thank you very much. You know? And this is what, what, what relates to the article just a year ago or so in the Atlantic Monthly about how to send your kid into therapy. Because the woman who wrote the article said, when I first started my practice, the first six or seven or eight clients I had all fit the textbook stuff that I learned for the period of time that I was getting my degree to be a licensed marriage and family therapist. And then patient number eight or nine comes in, 26 years old, very attractive, uh, well-educated in a very, very fine school, and she said, I love my parents. I love my siblings. I have a, a wonderful job. I love my apartment. But there's something I just, I'm not happy. I'm very confident in myself. I know exactly who I am and what I want to do. My parents have even supported me in coming to you to talk about all this. And I just simply don't know what's wrong. And the point that she's making in the article is, is that there are a lot of people with high self-esteem who still don't have a clue, right? They don't know what, what's wrong. And they have everything. They've been driven from school home every day. I don't want to get into one of those, I've walked two miles in the snow to go, <laughs> geez, you know, picked up everywhere, taking a thing, yeah, 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 you know. So, they don't know. Jesus is saying to the people of Jerusalem, you have considered yourself to be a very important elite within the people of the covenant. And you have operated in such a way that something like what the Roman government did here would never happen. And in fact, we have made outrageous compromises with this uh, occupying power in order that it didn't happen. And it's happened. And what's the solution, perhaps, is to begin to see uh, how we can create within us two things, the right kind of self-esteem and also the humility to understand who we are and what the limits are on our ability to uh, have absolute control over the world and our universe and also to be able to will change in others. And that's the sticking place in a season where a spiritual review is what is on the table for faithful Christian people. How do, we, how do we decide that our emotional, spiritual, and mental states can be improved by a little dose of humility? And remember we've talked over and over about this. Humility isn't the self-deprecating 
groveling way of behaving around people. It's knowing who you are and having that kind of confidence, the right kind of self-esteem, the right kind of the sense of self. When you find yourself in a situation where you're around an emotional field where everybody is very reactive and upset and uh, anxious, the best thing you can do is not reach out to them but work on yourself. So that you're calm. You know what to do. You have begun to develop the inter interior self-regulation and discipline to be able to meet that challenge. And once you do that, you function as a, 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 in the system like part of the immune system, which helps bring some sense of serenity and calm and non-anxiousness to the group. Jesus is only talking to the people that he's preaching to about their corporate understanding of self because that in the ancient Near East is what they were focused on. So we as Christian people have discovered as we've moved through successive ages and we're involved in a much more uh, self-driven and subjective era where the triumph of the autonomous self is the highest good, we have to include that too, you know? So when you hear, have you ever heard anybody say something to you like this? You know, I was at this meeting and so-and-so got up and the way they spoke, they were absolutely so calm. They seemed so self-possessed. They just, I don't know, is what I could ever do that. And somebody would say, you know what you're doing? You're comparing their outsides to your insides. And we do that all the time, don't we? So in that sense, we have to say, well, I don't know what they're feeling inside. doesn't matter. I know what I have to do in order to be self-possessed, to be at home with myself. And when I'm at home with myself, I can do more for others than the other way around. And that's sort of a modern interpretation of what Jesus is talking to the disciples about and what the necessity is in order to break this system open so that we understand that uh, uh, people who have a lock on things may not be the ones who are going to lead us into a uh, brighter future. So this week, uh, remember that God is not a cutter and a runner, and God is present to you in uh, all of the things that you do in your life, both inside and outside. And that the biblical witness affirms that over and over again, both in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. And in the reading from Luke's gospel, uh, we can put two and two together about uh, a sense of smugness, self-content, you know. We, we live in an era that values safety over adventure. And so that means that uh, if we accept that in some form, we have to know how we can uh, be willing to have faith, which Abraham did and was ready to go on the great adventure. So this week, think about what great adventure is ahead for you. Amen. Amen.